Romans 1.18, and let's take a brief moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for allowing us to be here tonight and to meet in the name of your Son and in honor of him. We pray tonight that the word will be clear and powerful and edifying and that it will further and advance your kingdom in the hearts of people and on earth as it is in heaven. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. We're going to find out that in Romans there's going to be a little bit of a dialectic going on, that meaning that in Better Call Paul, there may be some different views as I talk to myself back and forth. Dialectical theology is the way things are going in the 21st century, and it's kind, what it kind of means is a friendly argument among theologians. It's a back-and-forth thing. Someone comes up with something, someone else comes up with an answer to it that's not really antagonistic to it, but that's how tr- true interpretations come about. You might see some of that working out, in, especially in where we're going right now. In Romans 1.18... For the wrath of God is being apocalypse. That's that same word that we have in Romans 1.17, apocalypto, from heaven upon all the impiety and unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which can be known of God is plainly to be seen it's another word that is apocalyptic, phaneron, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-N. Plainly to be seen by them, for God has manifested it to them. Again, phanerao, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. Paul seems to stack up all the apocalyptic verbs, or several of them, in this little passage here. Now, there's an ongoing apocalypse of righteousness right now. It continues, Romans 1.17. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, the non-Jew. For therein, the righteousness of God is being apocalypsed, apocalyptically revealed from faith to faith or from the faithfulness of God in Christ to the faithfulness of Christ in People, that's how we'll interpret it. At the same time, there's an ongoing apocalypse of righteousness, as Jeremiah 9.24 says, boast, let him boast or let her boast who knows and understands that I am the Lord who does righteousness in all the earth. There's an ongoing apocalypse of righteousness as God's saving act in Christ and the spirit of Jesus Christ. The act is complete at the cross, but it's ongoing in the spirit of Jesus Christ. So there is an apocalypse, an ongoing unveiling or revealing of righteousness, Romans 1.17, as God's saving act in Christ and in the spirit of Jesus Christ. And there is an apocalypse of God's wrath against all unrighteousness, that is, listen carefully, all that runs counter to his deliverance. All that runs counter to his deliverance. This is the unrighteousness and ungodliness or impiety of human beings who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What can easily be overlooked in Romans 1.18, and if you overlook things, you are in danger of an oversight of insight. What is easily overlooked in Romans 1.18 is the use of all. God's wrath is being apocalypsed upon all the impiety and the unrighteousness of people who suppress the truth by unrighteousness. Now, the strategy of the apostle here, the strategy that he's deploying, and I use that as a military term on purpose, the strategy that he's deploying here 
is that not only do Gentiles, whom the Jews referred to as goyim or pagans, not only do the Gentiles suppress the truth by their idolatrous impiety, but so do Jews who do so by the idolatry of a doctrine that teaches justification by the works of the law. In other words, there's an equal suppression of the truth by the idolatry of the pagans and by the false religiosity of not all Jews and not of Judaism, but of a certain group of Jews who are characterized by teaching that you're justified by works of the law. That, too, suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. So to their own destruction, the Gentiles may have abused the limited knowledge. Listen carefully to this, because I know you're already seeing a little difference from Better Call Paul on this matter. To their own destruction... The Gentiles may have abused the limited knowledge of God that can be had through the material creation. I say limited. But the Jews have also abused the limited knowledge of God that can be had through the law, the Torah, to their own destruction. Refer to A.D. 70, for example. All human beings, therefore, left alone if they're left to their own devices, will work toward their own destruction. All human beings left alone will work toward their own destruction. Only God works effectively toward our salvation, mankind's salvation. He does so in Jesus Christ and in the Holy Spirit in a way that he can be known and loved. Now, we've shown before that Douglas Campbell has represented a fee, Romans 118 to 32 as a speech in character. It's called a prosopopeia, meaning that he envisages Phoebe, who delivers this letter, as a performer of the letter. And that's exactly what happened. The letters of Paul were performed before an audience. They were read sometimes with the nuances of Paul and his speaking, where he ups the volume where he stomps his feet a little bit, and then sometimes where he's gentle and quiet as a nursemaid in First Thessalonians 2, and she's performing it. So in a way, Campbell has said this is a speech in character, and I'm going to show you something tomorrow night, if Lord willing, if we're here and if you're here and if you get the message, that this is sort of a reproduction of Wisdom of Solomon, a writing that was also extant in the same time as Romans, and it purported a certain kind of Jewish doctrine, a form of doctrine, a type of teaching called Tupan Didache in Romans 6.17. I'm not going to write all these things out tonight for certain reasons, but you will get these things in print. And so what I'm going to do dialectically is say that may or may not be the case. That it's, it's almost impossible to prove that that's a speech in character, although it's a very good hypothesis. So if Romans, even if Romans 118 to 32 is not a speech in character or the speech of a Jewish Christian teacher, which is Campbell's theory, who is educated in Jewish wisdom literature, and I'm speaking of three different kinds of wisdom literature. Here there's the wisdom of Solomon, there's also the epistle of Aristius, and a third one, and there's also the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were written by a radical, ascetic, fundamental Jewish sect found in the Qumran text, the Dead Sea, about a certain person named the teacher of righteousness. He is throughout this, the writings of the Dead Sea Scrolls, found in Qumran, Q-U-M-R-A-N. And he's called the teacher of righteousness. It almost seems that Paul is going toe-to-toe -to -toe with this teacher of righteousness who proposes a radical fundamentalist kind of legalistic righteousness, and Paul does not do that. So... 
if Romans 1.18-32 isn't a speech in character, Paul lets it be said anyways. Paul lets this be said, even if it's being said by someone else. And there's a very good possibility that it is. But upon reflection, I would not go so far as to rigidly assert that God would not act in such a way as we're going on to 124, 26, and 28. I would not rigidly say that God doesn't act in such a way as to hand people over to their own sinful proclivities and lusts. Now, it could be argued, and I've argued this before, that this would be unjust of God if he were to hand people over to their own lust patterns for ignorance of God through the material creation. We could argue then that it's an unjust, it would be unjust of God, especially given that people are radically incapacitated toward God mentally and spiritually, and that the mind of the flesh is already at enmity with God. In fact, it is the definition of enmity against God, hostility against God. So if it's already that way, why would God blame people for being that way? So there's a good argument there. On the other hand, to say that he would never do that, upon further reflection, I thought this. Then why would God put everyone in a prison called disobedience? That doesn't seem fair either. But he does in Romans 11.32. So that Romans 1.18 to 32 is supposed to be taken as a speech in character. And there's another one in Romans 7.7 7 to 25, a speech in character. And there's another one in Romans 10. There's a character that Paul invents called the righteousness of faith. The righteousness of faith, speaking as a human character, speaks on this wise and says this, as opposed to what? Torah says, Torah of Moses says, speech and character, we've done one before, the fool's resume in 2 Corinthians 11 going on into 12, the fool's resume. Paul is not speaking, he's speaking as a fool. He's representing the speech of a resume of someone trying to give a letter of recommendation to people in human terms, and that's the resume of a fool. Romans 118 to 32 may very well, see this is what dialectical theology is. It may very well be a speech in character. It almost looks like Wisdom of Solomon, which I'm going to read tomorrow night a little bit of, especially chapter 13. Because certain cosmopolitan Jewish writers at the time that were already either preceding Paul or right at the same time as Paul, writing in a way that, sort of like Thomas Aquinas wrote, contra Gentiles, summa contra Gentiles, a theology against the surrounding pagans. And in all fairness to these writers, they weren't doing it to attack the Gentiles. They were just saying, we're supposed to be different. We have to live among these people. We're supposed to be different. But some of these writers use that just as a critique against the pagans so that they could, what, compare themselves by them to them and come out with superior pious honor. And that's the kind of thing that stuck in the craw of some of the groups in Rome, that Paul's trying to dismantle this kind of group bias. So there's a lot more here to be said than just writing it as a Socratic speech, meaning it's a speech of another person reproduced. It may ver- Again, it may very well be that. But even if it is that, Paul lets it be said. It's a pretty good chunk of the letter. He lets it be said. And he lets it be said... And he does this often. He invents conversation partners. And sometimes he invents a conversation partner like an arrogant Gentile in Romans 11. You say this, branches were cut off. And he invents this guy just so he can slam dunk him and so that he can accentuate the truth of grace and, the, and take truth out of its suppression into the light. And so there's a lot more reflection that goes on And on top of this, I've been doing a lot of in-depth study on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus and have found some phenomenal things. One from a very rare and hard-to-find book published in the Netherlands by Richard Bauckham uh, called The Fate of the Dead. 
and he really blows that out of the water in Luke 16, saying that it was never intended by Jesus to depict a picture of the afterlife. In fact, I've said that before, but the proof is right in there. It's phenomenal. So I kind of got that thing going at the same time. But on the other hand, Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28, which we'll get to down the road, why can't God hand them over to excesses of gross immorality and idolatry if it's proven that he's imprisoned all human beings in disobedience, Jews and Gentiles, in order to have mercy on them all? Oh, the depth of the wealth of the wisdom of God. That's all you can say to that. So Romans 8, 8, 1, 18 to 32. It is a definite section here. It is supposed to be taken as a speech and character that is totally against Paul's gospel. But that is not the case. Paul not only lets it be said, but doesn't disagree with some of the things therein, if not all of it. Paul lets it be said, and he lets it be said as a Jew, and he says, okay, yeah, okay, that's true about all those Gentiles who have the witness of God in creation and totally abuse it by idolatry and make images of the incorruptible God, incorruptible beasts, and images even of themselves. But in verse 2, in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, but you, O man, that is, I'll let you say that, but let me say to you, you're also without excuse. Tomorrow night I'm going to hit that, though, so I won't get off track tonight. We will say, and I think what is feasible, is that Romans 1.18 to 32 indicates a frame of mind and a form of teaching, a kind of teaching, which ignores the facts of a universal homardiology, universal sinfulness of mankind, and a universal soteriology, which is the type of doctrine, tupon didache, Romans 6.17, that we have been handed over to. That word paradidomy does a lot of work. It's a workhorse in Romans. He paradidomy hands over these Gentiles to their lusts. And in Romans 4.25, Jesus was handed over for our sins and resurrected for our justification. In Romans 6.17, we've been handed over paradidomy to a certain form of teaching, a form of teaching that is in somewhat of an opposition to Romans 1.18-32, inasmuch as it does not just critique an element of society as sinful, it teaches that all have sinned. All sinned, Romans 3.23. All sinned, Romans 5.12. So God has our doctrine that I'm in the doctrine that I'm teaching, which I propose to be Pauline, is that there is a universal homardiology showing all mankind have sinned and a universal soteriology that God meets with that, a universal mercy by which he saves or justifies all who sinned. And in that much, he lets Romans 1.18 to 32 be said but that everything in it is totally against Paul's gospel is not feasible to me. But again, this is what I think we have here. It indicates a frame of mind and a form of teaching which, which ignores the facts of a universal homardiology and a universal soteriology, which is the type of doctrine to which we have been handed over in Romans 6.17. Paradidomy is the same word deployed in Romans 1, 24, 26, and 28. So Romans 1, 18 to 32, and we're going to go verse by verse, not tonight in it, just these two verses tonight, may in fact be a speech in character, a prosopopoeia, something to be performed, kind of like a turn or burn message, of the sort that a teacher is allowed to speak here so that Paul can reply or give a retort to that. It's a brilliant rhetorical strategy. It's rhetoric. It's a rhetorical strategy. So this may be the rhetorical tactic that he uses here. On the other hand, this section of Romans 1, 18 to 32, 
may also represent a kind of collective teaching, not of Judaism. Don't get the wrong idea. We're not talking about Judaism. We're talking about a trend within Judaism, which isn't really even in Judaism. It was a kind of an offshoot of it that was around at the time, and it was derived from a type of doctrine to which they have become inculcated. Some of the people in Rome, especially the Jews, might have been inculcated or indoctrinated in the past, and it still just might be in their craw. And these are echoes of the kind of contra-Gentile doctrine that can be found in such writings as the letter to Aristius, which is you can read in the pseudepigraphal writings. That's A-R-I-S-T-E-A-S. Artapanus, A-R-T-A-P-A-N-U-S. You can look it up anywhere, even probably Google it. And Wisdom of Solomon, most famously. As well as in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was a community of Essenes. They were probably Essenes, E-S-S-E-N-E-S. A sect at Qumran, which touted the doctrine of a certain person they called the teacher of righteousness, who alone can interpret the Torah. Only this teacher of righteousness. He's almost a messianic figure. And again, their spirituality is radical, fundamental, legalistic. And they even thought that they were special. They even called themselves the sons of light. They thought they were in war against the children of darkness. They called the children of darkness the Romans. They knew that they would be victorious. Unfortunately, they hid those scrolls in a place that had only been found in 1947 because the Romans overran them on the way to destroying Jerusalem. And so there is that kind of Judaism, or called itself Judaism, which isn't. Paul never attacks Judaism, per se, incidentally, and it's not a religion either. It's a form of living. But there is a certain form of it, that got roots in some of the people in Rome and the Jewish Christians there, and it yielded to the terrible group bias that despised Gentiles. Because they would read things like this, like Romans 1, 18 to 32, which is an invective against Gentiles. And Paul's not saying, no, that's not true. Let me say that's not true at all. He's saying, okay, maybe that is true. But you also are without excuse. Not just you, a certain teacher that may speak that way, or the author of Wisdom of Solomon, which he also may be lambasting here, or the so-called teacher of righteousness. You too are without excuse. In 120, he's going to talk about how the Gentiles are without excuse. And Paul says, so are you. And then he goes on to take on the Jewish bias. So Paul later writes that the Roman saints have been handed over to a type of doctrine. Again, that's a key verse in Romans 6.17. And that doctrine asserts or affirms or clearly proclaims that Jesus Christ was handed over. And Paul deliberately uses the same word, paradidomi. They were handed over to do certain terrible things. They were handed over to reprobation. They were handed over to gross immorality and idolatry. Handed off to it. And then Paul says in Romans 4.25, Jesus Christ was handed over for our sins. And he doesn't mean our sins in a local sense. He means the sins of the whole world. And he was raised from the dead for our sins. Rectification. There is both in Romans 4.25. Note that verse also very well. In Romans 4.25, there's a universal homardiology, a declaration of the universal nature of sinfulness in mankind, with the exception of Jesus Christ. The only sinless one is handed over for our sins and raised for our justification, for our rectification is a universal soteriology. That's what the Romans 118 to 32 is missing out on. That's what a lot of fundamentalist preaching in our time is missing out on. In fact, it's not even preaching the gospel because of the oversight of what Paul was really getting at here. And so... 
If all sinned, the word is all in Romans 3.23 and 5.12, and all did, and all will, and all are, then our sins, or our trespasses, as Romans 4.25 puts it, paraptomata hemon, must be the sins of all. And if Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, not just our sins, but the sins of the whole world, then his resurrection from the dead is for the justification of all who sinned. This being in total agreement with Romans three twenty three to 24 and Romans 5, 18. So, This is what he's doing in Romans. Paul brings a universal homardiology together with a universal soteriology to bear on the divisive situation among the saints in Rome to demolish the walls of hostility, mutual hostility erected between groups there. Just as in Jesus' flesh, the wall that was made of hostility between Jews and Gentiles was demolished at the cross. In the body of his flesh, through death, he demolished the middle wall of partition between Jews and Gentiles so that he became our peace. And it says then, making of the two, two mutually hostile groups, one new humanity. And he himself is our peace. Paul is simply taking that primordial gospel truth and bringing it to bear on the walls that separate cells of Christian groups in Rome and Christian groups in our own time. And so he's not necessarily saying, I totally disagree with 118 to 32. He's saying, I, I, can, I can square with that, but you too, in 2.1, you who boast in God, as in the sense of, as Romans 2.17 says, you, Jewish teacher, who boast in God, that means you boast that you know him and others don't. It's the wrong kind of boasting. And he says, you do the same things they do. You do the same things they do. That is, you suppress the truth by impiety, only your impiety is that you think you can justify yourself by human means by observance of Torah's commands. And Torah didn't even teach that. The law didn't even teach that. Certain teachers did, and certain groups believed that. So Paul is doing this right from the start, right from the get-go. He's getting at both of these mutual hostilities, breaking them down, causing unity. That's what you have to do in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus also. The unity of the parable makes fools out of people who think that that's what pe- where people go after light, after death going to flames and hell and all the rest of it. It makes fools out of those who have made that interpretation. It makes them as blind fools. It's not what Jesus is teaching at all. In fact, I have to research this more and more. I'm going to bring this in a series of messages sometime. Take a little vacation from Romans. Hit the parable of the rich man because there's a lot of people that use that with the same zeal that they use to prove the divinity of Christ. And if you deviate from their sense of eternal forever hell, then you're not of God and you're a heretic and you've gone off the rails. Well, that's not the case. Now, when I was younger and I was a dispensationalist, I would say, there's the mystery. Paul said, that's the mystery. The mystery is that Jew and Gentile now are one. Jew, wall between, Gentile, wall crossed out by the cross, the two are one. That's the mystery. 
Now, what that is, is it is the mystery, but here's a new Latin phrase. I'm just going to introduce it tonight. A very small phrase. It involves the little dog in the Wizard of Oz, Toto. Pars pro toto. Kind of like you've gotten used to this word I use all the time, in toto. When I deal with Romans in toto, I don't just put verses I'm dealing with. I'll say in parentheses, Romans in toto. The whole epistle is under consideration, like in Sunday mornings. Pars pro toto means the part representing the whole. So when Paul says Christ in you, the mystery, which is Christ in you Gentiles, he's not saying that's the whole mystery. He's saying that's the mystery pars pro toto. The mystery of Christ in in Gentiles, Christ living in Gentiles, is not the whole mystery. It's a part of the mystery which he speaks to represent the whole. You know what the whole mystery is? The mystery of God's will to summarize everything in heaven and earth in Christ. That's the mystery in toto. So lots of times we took it, I did, in my partial understanding, and I'm still in partial understanding, don't get me wrong, but when I thought, well, that's the mystery, that he broke down the wall between Jews and Gentiles, and now Jews and Gentiles are mutually beneficiaries of the gospel through Jesus Christ. And they would say, that's the mystery. And then I think, well, that's the whole mystery. So there's still room for lots of people to go to hell. But that's the mystery pars pro toto, the mystery in part speaking of the whole. But when Paul wrote Ephesians 1, 9 to 11, he spoke of the mystery in toto, the totality of the mystery of which this is just a part. The Jews and Gentiles is a partial representation of what God's going to do universally. The destruction of the walls and the hostilities between Jews and Gentiles demonstrated in the destruction of the segregating walls between members of the body of Christ in Rome and groups in Rome is a partial representation of the whole mystery, which is, again, Ephesians 1, 9 through 11, the recapitulation of everything universally in Christ, everything without exception. That doesn't mean everything of a class, everything in totality without exception someone recently said can you think of a list of universalist theologians and I thought well there's a few but there's also about a dozen that I can think of right off the top of my head that are but as soon as they say it they back up and say they're not and you almost want to say are you trying to save your life here are you trying to save your salary here? Are you trying to save your job here? Are you trying to save your friendship with an affiliation or a denomination here? Or are you trying to please dear old Dr. So-and-so instead of God? But I wouldn't say that. I would to individuals, though. There are certain guys I want to ask. You just said that everybody's going to be saved. Then you backed up and said you're not a universalist. What does that mean? How do you square those two? I'd really want to ask them. And I'm not a combative person. You know that. Advance to my location, sibling. (laughs) So (laughs) here's the thing. Paul brings a universal homardiology with a universal soteriology to bear on the divisive situation among the saints in Rome to demolish the walls of hostility between them, which is only in keeping with what Jesus did in the body of his flesh through death, destroying a middle wall of partition, which is represented in the temple complex. There was a court of the Gentiles, and between the court of the Gentiles and the court for the Jews the inner court, and then the Holy of Holies, there was a wall of separation. In fact, if a Gentile crossed that wall, he got to get killed. He was killed. Jesus Christ broke down that middle wall of partition, and it was made of hostility. And all Paul is doing is bringing that to bear on the mutual hostilities between Christians. Imagine that, between Christians. 
making the two mutually hostile, hostile groups, one new humanity, with what Romans 6, 4 calls a newness of life by the Spirit. Romans 7, 6, Romans 8, 4, Romans 8, 12 to 13. And that newness of life eschews or despises the resentment. It doesn't despise other people. It despises the hostility that separates people. The newness of life in the Holy Spirit, who sheds abroad the love of God in our hearts for our neighbors, eschews, rejects, repudiates, and even hates the hatred that separates us. Again, what Paul does by Romans 1.18 to 32, whether he's saying it in his own words or he's letting someone else say it, even if it is the speech of a Jewish teacher, what he's doing is to show that the suppression of truth is also practiced by certain Jews who profess to have superior honor over the pagans that do those things. Paul's not saying it's all right to do those things. He's just saying it's not all right for you to say it's terrible that they do those things and we don't. And Paul says, yes, you do. Because the bottom line of this is to suppress the truth. And you're suppressing the truth just as much by saying that you are rectified in the eyes of God by the works of the law as they are suppressing the truth by having their phallic cult orgies. There's no difference. All sinned. All have sinned. I'll do sin. You better not sin today, though. If you sin today, you'll be shamed by everybody in the universe because obviously they haven't. They've never done that. Everybody in this building is ashamed at one time or another as a born-again Christian of something they did. You want to say you're not? Come at me. If you come at me, there's the thing you should be ashamed of. So, he lets this be said to show that the same things, that is, or the equivalency by other practices, the same things or the equivalency by other practices are being done by groups of Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome. Even deeper than this, though, the slave of Jesus Christ and the debtor to all human beings shows that the human condition under sin is universal. The human condition under sin is universal, and it's expressed by every individual who is bent downward and inward by the power of sin. And every individual who is functional under the fear of death rather than functional through the security of life Outside themselves, extra nos, more, Roman, more Latin. I'm not doing Greek, I'll do Latin tonight. Extra nos in Christu, Christo. Only God can bring us from the curvature in upon ourselves, which is the condition under sin and fear of death, into a condition of extra nos outside of us in Christ, where we live, but not we live, but we live by the faithfulness of God. We participate in the faithfulness of of Jesus Christ by an act of God. It is God in you both willing and doing of his own good pleasure. Philippians 2.13. Now. Paul gets down and dirty with this truth. By that I mean in Romans 6.1 to 8.13. You know what Paul does? He takes the glove, the gauntlet, and he throws it down. Not at the feet of the Jews. Not at the feet of the Gentiles and pagans and idolaters. 
not at the feet of the Jewish Christians, not at the feet of the Gentile Christians, but at the feet of you. You, three fingers coming back, the triune witness, me, you and me. And that's what we're going to see in Romans 6, 1 to 8, 13. Does not a Jew who teaches and touts justification by works of the law, does he not suppress the truth? Does he or not? Then he suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. He's not righteous by the works of the law, so he's suppressing the truth of the gospel by an unrighteous gospel. Does not, listen, ooh, this gets closer to our house. Does not the Reformed theologian suppress the truth? If he touts and teaches justification by the sinner's faith. We should not forget that, and this is an irony of all ironies, a teacher named William Law said this. Suppose one man to rely on his own faith and another to rely on his own works. Then the faith of the one and the works of the other are equally the same worthless, filthy rags. You mean the Reformation didn't fix everything? Is Paul doing a justification by faith versus a justification by works thing here? No. He's ruling out both justification by works and justification by human faith and teaching a justification of by divine faithfulness expressed in Jesus Christ's death on the cross. That's the finished work. Mr. Law is alluding to a passage when he says filthy rags. And I decided to do a little translation of Trito Isaiah 64.6, which in the Greek text is 64.5. Don't you love how that drives you crazy? He starts out with this little word, pantes, which means all. And he says, all of us have become like something unclean. And all of our righteous deeds put those in quotes, are like menstrual rags. All of us wither like leaves and our iniquities like the wind take us away. All of us. This kind of reminds me of Isaiah 53. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, said a Jewish prophet. Another anti-Semitic moron just did a speech lately. What anti-Semitic morons should realize is that a Jewish prophet died for your sins, you moron. A Jewish prophet died for your sins. White supremacist. A Jewish prophet died for your sins, black supremacist. Two morons went into a bar. One was a white supremacist. One was a black supremacist. They were both anti-Semitic. Both were morons. A Jewish prophet who died and rose from the dead went into the bar and said, I died for your sins, fools. And I love you. Okay. Paul says a little something different, but really the same using a slightly more polite language in Romans. He doesn't always use polite language. Read Galatians. But he does in Romans 3.20. He cites with his own spirit-directed emendation of Psalm 143.2 to accommodate his purpose. Sometimes he quotes a verse, but Paul is just as much under the spirit and has the spirit of God as the prophet. So sometimes it seems like he's doing a little alteration. But he's not. He's simply doing an emendation of the verse to fit the situation. So in Psalm 143.2, he quotes in in Romans 3.20, Paul says, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. No flesh. That means no human being. 
Paul understands the intent of the psalmist in 143.2, that there is no way that any human being can rectify him or herself by any means. It is therefore reasonable that he would say that since Psalm 143.2 says no human being can justify himself by any human means at his disposal, that certainly no human being can be justified by the works of the law. If you read 143.2, it doesn't say by the works of the law, but obviously by the works of the law fits in there because no human being will ever be rectified in God's sight, period, over and out by any human means. It is therefore reasonable that he would say that certainly no human being can ever be rectified or set right or made right before God by the works of the law. This verse is what I call a verbal leg sweep. A leg sweep is when in martial arts you get down and you sweep your leg and the the opponent gets both his legs swept out from under him and falls flat on his face. This is a verbal leg sweep of any Jewish Christian teacher or even if there is this teacher of righteousness of Qumran fame, of the Dead Sea Scrolls, who preaches justification by works of the Torah. But we must also recognize that if no human being can be justified in God's eyes by any human means, then this would include man's own faith, his own believing This makes it an absolute necessity that all human beings and every human being individually must be rectified by an act of God's grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Or there ain't no justification. Do I need to suggest to you that there are preachers of the gospel today who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness? The four spiritual laws is a suppression of the truth in unrighteousness, for example. Do this, repent of your sins, be sad, be sorrowful, be really sorry. You got to be really sorry. And you say, well, how do I know how sorry I have to be? You'll never know. You'll never know. So live under that for the rest of your damn life. That's a suppression, not only of the truth and unrighteousness, that's the suppression and oppression of people in a spiritual kind of tyranny. Okay, I'm just decided not to go somewhere. Here I'm going to end then. When I first came down here at 28 years of age, I would have said it. Now I'm 38. I'm never going to say it. So, I'm much wiser. Please note that Isaiah 64, 6 in closing, our iniquities are a power like the wind. Our iniquities, like the wind, have taken us away. It's a wind too strong for us. It's like sin is a power too strong for us. All of us, he said. The spirit of Jesus Christ is also like the wind. In fact, Jesus said the spirit is like the wind. But it's a far more powerful wind, an omnipotent wind, than iniquity is a wind, and it takes us back and establishes us by the gospel. It is not by righteous deeds which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration, by the renewal of the spirit, which he poured out on us copiously and plentiful and generously in Jesus Christ. By grace, you are justified. Okay, Paul, you had all that room in Titus 3, 5 to 7 to say we're justified by faith. And you didn't. You said, according to mercy and justified by grace, what's going on with you, Paul? What's going on with you? I wonder. Maybe he thinks we're justified by pure grace. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And through the washing of regeneration by the Holy Spirit. 
I just had an insight. Okay. I was just channeling Pastor Brown there for a minute. Mm -hmm. Now, he's not here tonight. Darn, I really wanted to hit him one more time on that bowling thing. So, it is not by righteous deeds that we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us, and by his grace, he justifies us. So what needs to be seen with regards to Roman 118 to 32 is that this kind of arrogance that's being blasted in Romans 130 called huper iphenos is on display among some of the Gentile and Jewish saints in Rome. Where's this problem addressed? Where it comes right down to the saints in Rome. I'll give you a hint. Romans 14. Going to put the squeeze on. That's tomorrow night. Lord willing. And if the creek doesn't rise. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. (laughs) We thank you for the universal homardiology that is according to the doctrine to which we've been handed over. What a privilege that we've been handed over. And may the wind of the Holy Spirit blow us away from the wind of our iniquities because we can't do that ourselves. No way. If you don't grant repentance, repentance doesn't happen. If you don't grant salvation by grace, it just doesn't happen. And if you don't pour out the love of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we can't love and we don't love. And so we don't fulfill the righteousness of the law, the righteousness that the law really requires.